as we uh, welcome God's word among us from scripture. I want to say first a, a note of gratitude to Will and Carolyn Armstrong. Will, you may recognize from confirmation this past spring. He's one of our confirmands and one of our newest members of our church and um, so he is living up to his end of the bargain of being the church here in this place, and as are you, by showing up and worshiping together um, under his leadership. And we couldn't be grateful for, be more grateful for your leadership here today, both of you. Um, we also are uh, grateful for our guest organist, Robert Woodward, who is um, standing in in place of our organist, Susan, today. And so uh, we are grateful for just the ways that the gift of music gives us life here in this place. So thank you for being with us, Robert. Um, with that, a bit of introduction to our scripture. Uh, since Easter, we've been working, uh, Bill and Joe and I, on this sermon series called The Image of God, Theological Resources for a World of Hashtag Me Too and Hashtag Black Lives Matter challenging sermon series. At the heart of this is the idea that everybody is created in the image of God, and yet sometimes we don't treat each other as if we understand that, as if we don't see the image of God in one another, and so we harm one another, or we forget that there's something holy and sacred and good and beloved about each person in this world. Both of these cultural phenomena, both of these important hashtags, curate a critique of our world that's both individualistic and systemic. On the one hand, we are seeing the ways that individuals are at fault for their own, often horrifying, individual violations of sexism and racism, while on the other hand, our systems and institutions have this built-in bias or prejudice or inequality or disc discrimination. The Me Too movement might say that the history of gender roles and gender norms and ways of treating women and ways of men inherently being powerful in this world create a context or make it possible for the Harvey Weinsteins in this world to exist. And the Black Lives Matter movement might say that the history of race in America, slavery, Jim Crow, separate but equal, redlining, racial profiling, institutional racism, these things create a context in which innocent black men are shot Ferguson makes the news, and Trayvon Martin's name becomes known across the country in the same way that Emmett Till's name was made known across the country decades ago. Turning to the Bible in times like these may seem cliche on the one hand and impossible on the other. Biblical platitudes like love your neighbor can lose their teeth in the fray and become fraught with meaninglessness or maybe overuse. And because Me Too and Black Lives Matter are distinctly 21st century phenomenon and 21st century America is increasingly secular, turning to the Bible somehow seems a little out of place. Not to mention the ways that the Bible has been seen as a legitimizer of patriarchy and historically played a critical role in the justification of slavery. It's complicated to turn to the Bible in times like these. The story of Ruth, I find at least, is a text that speaks into these two social movements in ways tender and complex. If you know the story arc of Ruth, then you might remember that Ruth married into a family from Bethlehem, a town that is distinctly familiar for those of us who show up on Christmas Eve, who this family from Bethlehem had moved to Moab, sworn enemies of sorts, in order to avoid a famine. 
And if you listen closely, there's a little bit of a joke in there. Bethlehem is literally the town of bread. And Ruth's, the family that Ruth marries into has to move away from the town of bread to avoid this famine, to find bread. Ruth's, ultimately, Ruth marries into this family, two brothers and um, a, a husband and wife, Naomi and her husband. So she, she marries one of the two sons, and it turns out that all the men die. Ruth's husband dies, Ruth's husband's brother dies, and her father-in-law dies. In a patriarchal society in which women have no power except in relationship to the men in their lives, Ruth became powerless. Her best bet, the best move for her, was to move home with her own mother and begin again looking for a husband of her own among her own people. But Ruth won't go. She will not do that. She, she instead insists on pledging her allegiance to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who lost everything. The text doesn't say why, but she does. Instead of going home to the protection of her mother's house in Moab, Ruth goes with Naomi back to Bethlehem, where Ruth will be a foreigner. And on the way, of course, there's no protection. In a world brazenly giving power to men, without a man to accompany them along the way, the unthinkable could have happened to these two widows on their way back to Bethlehem. Thankfully, they make it there safely. And Naomi, at when they get to Bethlehem, immediately sets out to find a family to take her in, an extended family member, technically from her, father's fa her, from, from her husband's family, who are somebody who's willing, maybe begrudgingly, to follow the Levitical law and take care of her in her old age. She's a widow whose sons and husband died far from home who has no children of their own, no grandchildren, to provide a hope for her future. Would you take care of your great-uncle's widow? Or your dad's cousin's widow? All that it means to care somewhat for someone in the last decades of their life? Would you pour your resources and yourself into your extended family in that way? Maybe you have. Maybe you've seen this happen in your own family. So, in the meantime... Naomi encourages Ruth to go and glean in the field, to pick up the produce that's left behind from the harvest. Legally, they're allowed to do that. Levitical law gives provision to take care, for the, take care of the poorest of the poor. They can take the leftovers, the leavings, the bits that are left after the best is taken. So this is where we are in this story when our scripture begins. I'm actually beginning a little bit earlier. This is not chapter 4. This is chapter 2, verses 7 through 12. So... Um, may God be with us in this good word to us today. This is Ruth talking with Boaz. She said, Please let me glean so that I might gather up grain from among the bundles behind the harvesters. Ruth arrived and had been on her feet from the morning until now and had only just then sat down for a moment. And Boaz said to Ruth, Haven't you understood, my daughter? Don't go gleaning in another field. Do not go anywhere else. Instead, stay here with my young women. 
Keep your eye on the field that they are harvesting and go along after them. I've ordered the young men not to assault you. Whenever you are thirsty, go to the jugs and drink from the field the young men have filled. Drink from the water that the young men have brought. And then she bowed down and faced the ground and replied to him, How is it that I've found favor in your eyes, that you've noticed me? I'm an immigrant. And Boaz responded to her, Everything that you did for your mother-in-law after your husband's death has been reported to me in full. How you left your father and mother behind in the land of your birth, and how you came to a people you hadn't known beforehand. May the Lord reward you for your deed. May you receive a rich reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to seek refuge. May God bless the hearing of this holy word. Please pray with me. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We live in a world where genealogy matters. At least one family member on both my mom and my dad's side of the family have taken a deep dive into our family tree. Maybe this is true in your household as well. Visiting the grave sites of great-great-great-grandparents was actually a normal part of my childhood. Both my mom and my dad's families had been in uh, one place for many generations. And so in my dad's family in particular, I could go and stand at the grave of one of the great-great-great-great-grandparents. Maybe you have an account with Ancestry.com, too. Maybe you know the name and birthplace of your great-great-great-great-grandparents. Maybe you've even swabbed your cheek to find out the migration history of your genetic relatives through 23andMe or one of these other Ancestry-type genetic uh, companies. A friend of mine did this recently, and it was pretty fascinating, this map that you get of all the family histories that this idea of haplogroups and possible Neanderthal roots, it's kind of wild. Although, and it just reminds you of this basic human thing that we are all interlinked somehow through some variation of the distant past. Genealogy matters. And sometimes genealogy is even political. Any mention of Barack Obama in this context could serve as a reminder of how one's family tree matters when it comes to politics. And not only that, we live in a world where royal lineage matters. I'm not sure I would have put it that way a few months ago, but then all of America, all of America, seemed to tune in to the royal wedding with such intensity, was surprised by how enchanted we were. An American in the royal palace? African ancestry in the royal palace? A Hollywood celebrity in the royal palace? Oprah on the guest list? I can't decide which of these was the thing that brought us there. They all seemed to intermingle in our attentiveness to this regal ceremony. Or was it that diamond tiara? Or the wedding dress reveal? Or the incredible Michael Curry as bishop and preacher? Or maybe this question, even, of what monarchy means in the 21st century. 
In any case, genealogy matters in our world. Genealogy is sometimes political and royal lineage matters. And if that is the case, then this is also true. While everything seems to change, everything remains the same. Or as the Bible puts it, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun because in the ancient book of Ruth, genealogy mattered. And genealogy was sometimes political. And it turns out, royal lineage mattered. This sacred family tree helps us to see who God is and how God is at work in the world. In order for us to get to this idea that God can be present for everybody, that everybody is made in the image of God, that God's redemption is for everyone, no matter who you are or where you are in life's journey, that God's love is open to you, we have to attend to this idea that genealogy matters, that Ruth belongs in God's family tree, that Ruth's love and her love embodied in sacrifice is an important part of the royal Davidic lineage, the lineage of King David, and thus an important part of Jesus's genealogical story. If genealogy didn't matter, then we wouldn't even hear about Ruth. If the politics of who you are and whose you are didn't matter, then Ruth would be insignificant. But the fact is, within our faith family tree, there's an outsider, and probably more than one outsider, but the outsider Ruth makes holy every person who's an outsider in the kingdom of God. Somehow, by the grace of God, an outsider finds protection under somebody who's an insider. Boaz is one of these kin, kinfolk of Naomi. She's one, he's one of the ones who could be called on to take care of Naomi in her old age. And yet, it's through Ruth that Boaz meets Naomi. Did you notice how Boaz tells the men in the field not to assault Ruth? One, that he needed to keep the men away from her. And two, that in order for Ruth to feel safe and welcome in that place, he needed to tell her that he had told the men to stay away from her. And do you notice how she wonders why she's even being noticed by Boaz in the first place? Why would he do something like that? Make sure that she was fed and safe and kept from harm? In a way, this is a story of hope for women who are living in harm's way, for the women who don't have someone to tell the men to keep away from them. This is a story of hope for those who are powerless, who find themselves without protection. This is a Me Too story of redemption, that another assault was avoided, that another woman was safe at work, that another woman found herself an ally who supported her wholeheartedly. By the end of the book of Ruth, Boaz takes in Ruth and Naomi, and Ruth and Boaz bear a son, and 
her son will become the grandfather of David, an important part of the family tree of Jesus. Now, it's a short enough book, four chapters. You could probably read it in the time it takes for an Uber to arrive. So read it. Take, take a chance. See what happens next time you're waiting for something. But the legal system within the book of Ruth that Ruth and Naomi and Boaz are playing in, are working within, in order to become family to one another, that legal system is really complex. And you'll see that when you read more of the book of Ruth. It's at least as complex as our legal codes are today. If you're a lawyer, you know that intimately. Within this ancient legal system, which is really truly designed to keep widows and orphans and foreigners and outsiders safe and protected in times of need, there are always people on the lookout to skirt their responsibilities. So if you read the book of Ruth, you'll see that one of Naomi's next of kin, though actually the first person on the list who is legally responsible to take care of her, he decides that it's just not going to suit his lifestyle at this time to take care of Naomi and Ruth. But Boaz sees Ruth and says yes. He protects her. He takes her in and provides for Ruth and Naomi. He lives up to his responsibility to care and love and take care of those in the world around him. The book of Ruth is an important part of our faith family tree. Jesus' grandmothers aren't mentioned for the most part. If you look at the, at the genealogy of Jesus, there are dozens of people in that faith family tree of Jesus. Only four women are mentioned, Ruth and three others. And so the gospel writers highlight Ruth maybe because of her outsider status, because it tells us something about who Jesus is, right? He's an insider to Jewish culture, but he becomes an outsider enough that he has to risk and sacrifice his own life. Maybe because of the sacrifice that Ruth makes to go with Naomi, not home to safety, but to a foreign land where her status would be in question and her life might be at risk. You can hear all of that echoed in the life of Jesus. Ruth is a person made vulnerable by her loyalty. She's made vulnerable by her love. And love does that, right? It makes us vulnerable. It's risky to love one another. As one of Jesus' great-grandmothers many generations over, Ruth becomes a symbol-bearer of the way God's love works. One of the things that's at, at the heart of both the Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movement is the fact that these systems of justice and these ideals of American freedom that are set up for good sometimes fail us that within a country that has the means and opportunity to make all things good, that there are still people in our country who feel that they must be silent about the oppression or violence that they experience. And they find out that the things that we learned in kindergarten, to share what you have, to be kind, and to be honest, to keep your hands to yourself, don't seem to apply to the adult world in the ways that we might have hoped. If the story of Ruth is to help us see how God's love works, and what does that mean? In a world where vulnerability can lead 
to catastrophe or moral compromise or terror or trauma, the story of Ruth helps us remember that we are called to love anyway. Ruth could have turned back. She could have abandoned Naomi. Ruth didn't need to be a part of Jesus' family tree. She could have said no, but instead she chose vulnerability. She chose to love anyway. I liked this quote from a Liberian peacemaker, Lema Gaboe. She says, choose to step out and do the impossible. Choose to step out and do the impossible. Choose love. Choose vulnerability. So, one, more, one more story, and then I'll quit. Anthony Bourdain's sudden suicide caught the culinary world by surprise this weekend. And as many of us are being reminded in the wake of his death, mental illness and suicide can affect anyone, regardless of income or success. So in the wake of his death and others this week, if someone you know or love or you yourself are in need of more support, there is a National Suicide Prevention Lifeline that has 24-hour-a-day help. In one of the many glowing obituaries about Bourdain, about this complex storied chef, someone recalled a story of Anthony Bourdain in an episode of Parts Unknown, sitting down at a meal with one of the founders of the Black Panther Party, Bobby Seale. And they didn't just talk about food. They didn't just talk about history. They talked about freedom and what that means in a tangible way. They talked about how the Black Panther movement, at its very core, at its most basic, stood for the things that any of us would want for our own family. Quality education, a place to live, a job, basic civil rights. The writer of this obituary reflected on how brilliantly and bravely Bourdain wove political education into the food culture in a way that provided a kind of historic context and to be honest, compassion for the oppressed that Americans need now more than ever. And he did that across the board, welcoming all of us to see the world through a new lens. He stepped vulnerably into places others might not readily travel, and he did the impossible. He built bridges over a meal. So if there's some part of the gospel, the good news that God has for us in the words of this Liberian peacemaker, how can we, like Ruth, step out and do the impossible? What ways do we have power or privilege in our own world? What ways do each of us have power or privilege in this world to enact even the tiniest shift toward justice, whether personal or systemic, for the sake of one of God's beloved? How can we work the system for good and not harm and reform the system where necessary? In what ways can we be like Ruth, stepping out into the unknown? In what ways might we sacrifice for the sake of love? In what ways can we, like Bourdain, build bridges over a meal? One theologian says that if God is love, then humans are made by love, for love. Yes, we're stuck in impossible situations. We will never have the power individually or together to completely undo the injustices of the world or completely untangle the suffering of this world. But we are made by love, for love. In such love, 
how might we step out and do the impossible? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.